Today's reading is John 20, verses 1 to 18. It can be found on page 1,000 of the Bibles next to your seats as well as on the screen. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the, tomb had been remo- that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from, from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. The word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me. Our gracious God, as we come into this place on Easter morning, some of us may come here wondering why we're here, uh, wondering what this is all about, wondering if we fit, perhaps intrigued a little bit by hearing Peter's personal story a few minutes ago, but maybe just still asking so many questions, still unsure of where we fit in this thing. Some of us may come with the, the forthright boldness of the other Peter, the Peter in this passage that went rushing into a place of death, unafraid. And some of us with the hesitancy of John, standing outside the tomb, uncertain about going in. And some of us maybe come today with the, the emotional rawness of Mary Magdalene. We may come with joy or grief. We may come with thankfulness or questions and doubt. But we're all in the same boat. We're all more of a mess than we care to admit to each other. The ruin of this world has affected us and our hearts. 
and we look to you in this time and we, we look for the words of Scripture to be true, that you move towards us in such a way that we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined. We want to live in that truth. We would love that to be true. We would love that to be something we believe. Help us now. Make your grace come alive, even as we sit hearing these words. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this year, I don't always do this, but this year I filled out a bracket for the NCAA tournament. And um, I, I don't always do it, but when I do, I, I have the same experience of feeling like, oh, this is easy. Um, and then that turning into, no, that didn't go so well. But the this is easy part comes in because of these, these little magic numbers that the basketball gods decide to put behind the teams. Maybe you've seen this. It's the seeding number. So basically you know if, say, Georgetown is sitting there with a number two behind it, that they're going to win every game they play until they meet the team that has a number one behind it, and that's when they'll lose. Because those, that's how good the teams are. It's a little scoring system that they tell you. So filling out a bracket is easy. Just, you know, you just kind of do it. Oh, seven beats eight, you know, and two beats 15. And so I fill out my bracket, and of course I know there might be an upset, so I throw some upset in. But I don't have to know anything about these teams because the basketball gods provide me that number. And then the games get going. Of course, that's not how it goes, right? And this year, um, if that's how it went, then we wouldn't have the amazing storyline this year in the March Madness tournament of Florida Gulf Coast University, right? Some of you have the knowing look on your face. Some of you have no clue what I'm talking about. But here's this team, just to give you a sense of it, just to draw you into the basketball excitement, is here's this team that didn't even exist until 1997, wasn't even allowed into this uh, NCAA Division I tournament until two years ago, or last year. And it's their first time in it. And what do they do? But in round one, this number 15 seed team upsets the number two Georgetown in the first game. And they do it with high-flying dunks in a fast-paced full-court game that people end up calling Dunk City. And so suddenly people, I mean, no one knew who this team was. It was just kind of a fluke. They got in a tournament. And they, they beat Georgetown, and then they go and they beat San Diego State the next, the next game. And, it's, and everyone's getting excited, and people learning about this team, people who didn't know who they were, suddenly fans of Florida Gulf Coast University. And people are going online and, and hearing about it, but then getting interested in the whole tournament just because of this team, and, look, and then seeing some of the footage, maybe online, of these high-flying dunks and these awesome games, and the sort of just freedom and passion and uh, fearlessness of these, this team of they got nothing to lose. They're just having fun out there. And it's contagious as people look and see. They kind of join up, get swept up in this movement. That's a lot of what Easter is like. Not so, I know some of you aren't surprised that I compare Easter to basketball. But. <laughs> so, I mean, I'll get more creative next year. But... But I also love the simplicity of this story. The, the, the part that we read today, and I appreciate uh, Karen being willing to read a little more than what she thought, and you didn't see all of it on the screen, but I, I love how that whole drama ends with very simple words. I have seen the Lord. That's what it all comes down to. I have seen the Lord. I have, I have seen the Lord. I want to talk today about seeing, the importance of seeing as we think about Easter and the meaning and how it really is 
a movement that as we talk about it, as we kind of tease you with it today, it's inviting you into this movement that's transformational in your life. Much more than basketball, as much as it hurts me to say that. It is much more transformational. It's huge. But you have to see, you have to look into it. And there's two parts. You have to, according to this story in the Gospel of John, you have to look into the evidence. You know, there's people out there looking into things that no one's ever actually seen. There are scientists, physicists, who dedicate their life and their career to looking for something called dark matter. And no one's ever attained it. No one's ever grabbed hold of it. I can't even explain to you what it is. Except I, do, I know something very crucial about dark matter is that it's dark. Yeah. That's all I, I... I don't know. I, Adam will tell you what it is after the service. But it's... <laughs> and, and, and no one's actually got it to a point of... of observable of, hey, we've contained it, or we, we can point to it, or we've experienced it directly. That No one can say These scientists, these physicists who are dedicating their life to it, they haven't yet done that. They want to. So how do you describe this? I mean, it's even, in a sense, it's even more far-fetched than the Easter story, because people said, I have seen. And all these people, even up to 500 people, saw him in one, in one occasion. They, I've seen him. We saw him. They couldn't get around it in those early days. They couldn't argue with it, because people were saying, no, we saw him. We saw him dead, we saw him alive. But this is what this interesting thing this physicist said. This is her quote, and I love it. Elena Aprile says this, We must try and try again to find the truth. If we stop because there is no guarantee that we will find anything, then we will never find anything again. We must keep searching for it with the best tools we have. I love that. I love her acknowledging basically the best way to ensure you're not going to find it is to stop searching. And that applies directly to the resurrection. And to your ex- exploration of the Christian faith, have you looked into the best tools that we have, which are basically the gospel stories of the resurrection? As you go to them, you find models of people looking into the evidence. Basically, the story today shows us a bunch of people in investigation mode, thorough, intense, searching and looking. They're running. I don't know if you caught some of the language. Peter's running. John's running. Peter's bending over, and they're looking at the evidence at the strips. And then... And then Peter's going into the tomb, and then John's following, going in, and then Mary's coming with a different kind of search, a, a deeper, emotional. She's bringing her, her, her just raw pain and emotion to the empty tomb and trying to figure things out, and she's weeping amidst her investigation of how to find meaning amidst all this. And these are models for us. And just ask yourself, have you, you, know, have you entered into this? Uh, have you investigated? Have you looked at... The data. Every year we have a chance at Easter, we always bring up some of the just evidence, some of the authentication markers that exist in the Gospels that are really quite you know, satisfying evidence when you really look into them. One of the things that this story presents us, so I won't go into a lot of them, because every year we maybe hit one or two. In the, in the Gospel of John, what you basically have is a, a story with a whole bunch of rough edges that haven't been smoothed out. And it's a sort of authenticating marker of this account. Basically, we have, we have an, a story that tells us that John, the, go, the gospel writer John, wasn't concerned with doctoring things up to make something look like a lock-solid case. It, it, it comes off, historically speaking, just as someone saying, this is kind of the, the raw confusion and chaos and surprise of what we experienced. It's not the kind of thing you would do if you were trying to make something up and, and start a movement around something that never happened. It has this sort of just realness to it as you read it. Let me give you an example. 
Um, as, as he writes, he says, finally, the other disciple, which is, he's ref- that's his way of self-reference. So he's talking about John. John's writing, talking about himself. He says, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside, he saw and believed. That sounds kind of nice. But we don't hear about what Peter, if, whether Peter believed or what. We don't even hear, know what John is meaning when he says he believed in the midst of this. And then the very next sentence is very confusing because it says, they still did not understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. I thought you just said John believed. What, what are we saying here? And then it goes on to say, well, those two disciples went home, but Mary's still there. Mary's at the tomb, and she's weeping, and she clearly doesn't believe anything about the resurrection yet because she's concerned with where have they put the body. So it, it reads very awkward. It's got rough edges. In fact, so much so that people copying the Greek manuscripts over the decades and centuries began to naturally smooth it out. And so scholars of the manuscripts can kind of say these later versions of the Gospel of John, look at these little ways that the copyists started to say, well, let's, let's change it so that that story feels a little more smooth. But what we have here today is, is the genuine, more original version of it. It leaves us just kind of saying, huh. It doesn't feel like something made up. The other thing about the story that I love, the way he tells it, is that it, if basically if you come to your search with Christianity and looking into Jesus with some confusion or uh, doubt or skepticism or there's a chaos to it and you don't quite get it all yet, there's, a, there's just a big neon sign gleaming at you in the story saying, there's a place for you here. This is what it's like to grapple with Jesus. There's a confusion, chaos kind of element to what does this all mean? So just know that you have the confidence to enter in and there's a place for you amidst the Christian church and amidst City Life Church. So we have to see the evidence for this to become transformational. At some point you have to look into the evidence. But you also have to see the stunning impact that this resurrection has, that Easter has in our life and in our world. It starts out very simply when Jesus calls to Mary. Finally, she recognizes when he does what? She recognizes him when he does what? It's when he says her name. And he calls to Mary by name, Mary. Someone, in fact, yesterday, someone asked me, um, what, what, does, what difference does it really actually make if Jesus rose from the dead? or not. I'm sitting at a baseball game and someone's asking me this and you know for a pre actually this is this is go time for a preacher the day before Easter. I mean I was the juices got going and the you know the goosebumps and stuff. All right, here we go. Um, what difference does it really make if Jesus rose from the dead or not in terms of our connection to God? That's a very good question. Well, basically what it does is once if you enter into, okay, Jesus rose from the dead, it seems legit, it seems like what everyone believed and everyone saw, then you have to ask the question, why did he go through death at all? If this is someone who could cheat death, why didn't he cheat it just like three days earlier? Right? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be a little bit of his self-interest? And the reason is because you start to look at Jesus' whole life differently if he rose from the dead, and you say, the whole thing was leading towards the cross. So if he rises from the dead, then there's a sense of who is he? Who can rise from the dead? And then why did he go through death? And just to make it kind of compress it all, basically the whole thing happened so that God could call you and I by name. So he could call you and me by name. So that 
when Jesus goes to the cross, it's God reaching out and taking our, our place, the place of ruin and mess and brokenness and the place of punishment in our place. It's God saying, I'll step in and reach towards you because you're not able to reach towards me and get there. And God's desire in the long run is that all of us would know every single day that he's calling you by name. That's the gracious love of God that comes to you through Jesus, the resurrected Lord, that he calls you by name. What kind of difference would it make to live like that? Imagine if you lived every day knowing that God of the universe was just calling you by name, tenderly voicing your name. And uh, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with you, although it starts there. Because the next thing that Jesus does is he basically says, go. Do you notice that? The, re- the resurrection not only means that you are called by name by God, but it also means that you are sent out to move out into this world. Move out into this ruined world with the hope that comes knowing that even the enemy death has been conquered. What kind of hope that produces? We're a people sent on the move, resurrection people. And I love how C.S. Lewis puts it in his book, Miracles, when he says that in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole world up with him. He says, one has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the heavy load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swinging on his shoulders. When Jesus says, go, he's asking us to, in a sense, join in with the strong man who's taken up the whole ruined world, the whole ruined mess on his shoulders, and has started marching off. And he's saying, go with me into this. It's time. The resurrection takes us out into the world and moves us out with boldness. In the year 1999, Kenneth Woodward wrote this in Newsweek. Before Christianity's influence Uh, because Christianity's influence is so pervasive throughout much of the world, it is easy to forget how radical its beliefs once were. Jesus' resurrection forever changed Christians' view of death. Rodney Stark, sociologist at the University of Washington, points out that when a major plague hit the ancient Roman Empire, Christians had surprisingly high survival rates. Why? Most Roman citizens would banish any plague-stricken person from their household. But because Christians had no fear of death, they nursed their sick instead of throwing them out on the streets. Therefore, many Christians survived the plague. Just one example of the unusually radical boldness that comes with this people on the move that you're invited to be a part of. And I find it fascinating to hear and to read about how Christians post-resurrection started to pray There's an example in the book of Acts chapter 4 where we we hear one of their prayers, and this is how it ends. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs of wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And then we read this about them. 
all the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work among them all that there was no needy persons among them. You catch the boldness. You catch how they're on the move. You catch how prayers sound when you've been swept up in this movement where death is not even something that we're afraid of. So just ask yourself, as you consider the, the amazing invitation and the scary invitation of, of moving closer to the people on the move, is there anything in your life right now as you look at it that could legitimately be described as being on the move? Is that your life? Are you on the move out into this ruined world? And do your prayers possess boldness? Both of those things are what happen as you draw in to life with those on the move because of the risen Lord. I have seen the Lord. Let us pray. Our God of grace, as we consider your words and consider our lives, may your words enlighten where we find ourselves. Help us to understand these things and to move forward more and more knowing your grace, knowing you are speaking into our lives, leading us. May we taste enough of your power and your grace that we take further steps into it and into the boldness and into the movement that you are doing in this world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.